getting the bad guys to pay for a more robust U.S. Cyber Command, and tips to recruiting IT security talent. These stories and more are coming up in the ISMG Security Report. Hello, I'm Eric Chabra. As we heard in last week's security report, President Donald Trump is elevating the U.S. Cyber Command to a unified command from a subordinate command and ordered a study to separate the leadership of Cyber Command from the National Security Agency. At the moment, the NSA director also heads Cyber Command and many of NSA assets, human and technical, are shared with Cyber Command. Though some relationship between the two organizations is expected to continue after a separation, Cyber Command will need to furnish its own assets independent of the NSA. When that occurs, Cyber Command will require billions of dollars to fund its operations to defend military IT systems as well as the nation. Strategic Cyber Venture CEO Tom Kellerman has an idea to raise at least some of that money without burdening American taxpayers. His idea? Get cyber bad guys to pay for it. This isn't a proposal like getting Mexico to pay for the wall to prevent illegal immigrants from crossing the border. Kellerman's idea has a proven track record in law enforcement that for years have seized assets of drug dealers and other criminals. Here's Kellerman. I would highly recommend that the U.S. government begin to modernize forfeiture laws and anti-money laundering laws to address the the massive amount of capital being transferred for cyber weaponry through digital currencies and alternative payment systems. If you were to modernize anti-money laundering provisions and forfeiture laws, you could create a super fund by which you could fund not only cyber command, but critical infrastructure protection domestically. And that would involve joint effort from the Secretary of Treasury through the head of the FCC all the way through the Secretary of DHS. But I challenge them now that they're beginning to take the gloves off and become proactive to recognize in the end of days, if you disrupt the flow of money in the dark web, the dark web will will turn on itself. Kellerman says the Drug Enforcement Administration serves as a model to self-fund operations. Once you take down a major dark web forum that's selling national secrets or leveraging cyber weaponry to cyber criminals and nation states around the world, you all of a sudden come across a trove of Bitcoin or a trove of digital currencies, some of which that have been stolen, others of which have just been utilized for the exchange of goods and services. And those things never get seized and they never get put into a fund that could be utilized to defend America. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. Endpoint response and detection products can be powerful tools, but are they must-have wares? For some insight, we turn to ISMG Security and Technology Editor Jeremy Kirk. For aviation accidents, in-flight recorders provide crucial technical details around when a mishap occurred. For desktops and laptops that have been attacked by a hacker, the equivalent is Endpoint Response and Detection, which is a popular class of products. They're made by vendors such as FireEye, Carbon Black, Tanium, CrowdStrike, and others. EDR products are powerful tools that provide a play-by-play on a very technical level of exactly what's happened on a computer during an attack. Interestingly, many antivirus companies have long collected this type of technical information, but just never made it available to customers. But now that's spawned a whole new class of products. But there are caveats. EDR products record so much technical data from endpoints that it can be hard without trained people to make sense out of it. That's challenging for smaller IT security teams, which may not have the resources to get EDR's full benefits. That's according to Eric Ouellet, who's a research vice president with Gartner. He says that's given some EDR buyers a tinge of remorse. They didn't anticipate how much work it actually required of their teams to actually get 
to do something with the solution. So EDR is a detection and response tool, and in the perfect meaning of the word, there has to be warm bodies looking at this stuff, because otherwise you're creating an inventory of data that if you're not actioning it, you're not doing something with it, it's going to become overwhelming. EDR software doesn't record in-session information, such as what someone is writing in an email or a Word document. Instead, it records very granular information around what a user is doing, such as if someone visited a certain website, downloaded a document, or if strange processes were launched as a result. If admins suspect that an attack took place, it's possible to query other machines running the EDR software agent to see if those computers may have the same clues that indicate a wider compromise. But EDR can't automatically tell if you've been infected. Eric Goulet. So you can't just go and say, I want to find WannaCry within my environment. It just doesn't work. If they don't have a contextualized help thing at the top, you have to know what the conditions are to allow WannaCry to exist within your environment. And that's probably the biggest challenge. There are also cost considerations. Ulay says EDR can cost 8 to $10 per seat, with some platforms costing near $30 per endpoint. That's between three to five times the cost of an endpoint protection platform. It's a significant investment if organizations aren't using an EDR platform to its full capabilities. But vendors are increasingly merging EDR-like capabilities with anti-malware, meaning you may not need to buy two platforms. And it's especially helpful for those organizations where a pure-play EDR might be overkill. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Jeremy Kirk. When we return after a brief message, we'll furnish you with some tips to help your organization stand out in recruiting IT security talent. If you can't find the exact perfect candidate, maybe you can find 80% of what you're looking for and you can train the rest of the 20%. This is the ISMG Security Report. ISMG's Fraud and Breach Prevention Summit Toronto, taking place on September 12th and 13th at the Delta Hotel, will feature Art Coviello, former CEO RSA Security, as the keynote speaker. This plus other subject matter experts from Visa, CA Technologies, Carnegie Mellon, and more will discuss key information security topics. Register today at events.ismg.io. Welcome back. It's a competitive market for recruiting IT security talent. That means hiring managers need to be creative. My ISMG colleague, multimedia content director, Joan Goodchild, has written a story titled Seven Tips for Recruiting InfoSec Talent You Need Now. Welcome, Joan. Hi, Eric. We don't have time to go into all seven tips, but there are a few that intrigue me. One is rethinking degree requirements. Are information security recruiters unrealistically expecting a long list of degrees after a prospect's name? A lot of recruiters specifically feel as though, yes, sometimes the expectation is a bit unrealistic. If we want to be able to fill this talent pool where there are so many voids now, the expectation for a master's degree really needs to be shelved. And instead, they need to consider that a lot of hands-on training and experience is just as valuable as a degree. Instead of looking at the candidate's resume and seeing what they've got in terms of the letters after their name, it's really about where they've been, what they've done, and of course, aptitude. How do they come across in an interview? Do they see like they'd be able to grow within an organization and within a job? Those are really some of the more big emphasis that a company is putting on an individual now rather than the degree itself. IT security skills are similar in many enterprises, but you write that IT security recruiters should make their job listings unique. If they're going after the same type of skilled InfoSec pros, how does an organization make that position they're trying to fill unique? The recruiters that we spoke to said 
It's really about making it clear in the listing about what is in it for the candidate. You know, one of the recruiters I spoke to said, if you can't answer that question, you've lost before you've even started the game. So that means including details like why this is a great security team, what they've accomplished, and what would be in it for them if they took on the opportunity in terms of perhaps training and professional development. A lot of security organizations are really trying to make these job listings an actual sales pitch rather than putting together kind of a hollow explanation of this is what the company does. This is what we've accomplished. It really needs to get very specific about what the security team is all about, what their mission is, how the security team supports the mission of the company. When one goes on an interview, they're told to learn as much about the organization. It sounds as if the recruiters need to understand the job prospect who they're meeting with. Absolutely. It's all about personalization. A lot of the experts that I spoke to who've really been in the trenches in terms of hiring say, sometimes you need to tailor the opportunity just a bit more once you've met the person. If you think you've got a candidate that you really want to bring into the organization, then don't get bogged down with the details that already exist. How can you tailor this opportunity so that it's something that's even more attractive to their own personal situation and professional goals? You write about the 80-20 rule when it comes to recruiting. What's that about? It's very difficult to find the perfect candidate for any job, particularly in the infosec industry, where there is a very shallow talent pool to fill many, many jobs. If you can't find the exact perfect candidate, maybe you can find 80% of what you're looking for and you can train the rest of the 20%. I spoke with one recruiter who talked about an organization that's got an office in San Francisco where the pickings are obviously a lot better than their other office in Texas, but they really want someone in that Texas location. They're being kind of picky, she says. So she's really advocating for them to take an 80% version of what they're looking for and build up the rest of that 20% with training and education opportunities once they're on the job. To read Joan's story, go to careersinfosecurity.com. Thanks, Joan. Thank you. Finally, some good news on the vehicular data privacy front. The Government Accountability Office surveyed 13 automakers that collect vehicle information, and all 13 say they use that cold data on a relatively limited basis, mostly to provide requested services to consumers and to researchers and developers. None report selling consumer data to unaffiliated third parties. NGO says the 13 car makers say they obtain explicit consumer consent before collecting data. One other thing. GEO says the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration needs to do a better job in defining its role in regulating vehicular data privacy. Dave Wise is GAO Director of Physical Infrastructure Issues, and in the report he writes that the Transportation Safety Agency would be better positioned to coordinate with other federal agencies and to effectively oversee emerging vehicle technologies by clearly defining, documenting, and communicating its roles and responsibilities in vehicular data privacy. That's the ISMG Security Report. Our theme is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Eric Chavro. Catch you next time. Oh, 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 oh,